Last week I got a little bit bogged down as I was reflecting upon the evening. I was hoping to go five chapters last week and, and five chapters tonight and six chapters next week as we wrap up the book of Mark. And in reality what happened last week was that I, I got through three chapters. And that didn't surprise you or me, but uh, we're going to make up for it, Lord willing, tonight. Uh, so tonight we're going to be going through chapters 4 through 9 is the material we'll be covering, chapters 4 through 9. And then next week we'll finish uh, the book of Mark. So let me just rehearse for you, remind you, because this is really important to the whole theme of what we'll be looking at tonight. Let me rehearse for you, looking on the screen, if you guys could put that first one up there. Uh, go to the next slide, please. <clears throat> I want to rehearse for you Mark chapters 2 and 3, because what we saw last week in Mark chapter 2 and 3, we looked at the growing popularity of Jesus versus the growing opposition to Jesus. And it's interesting what you find that the popularity of Jesus, when you look at the crowds, you see this growing popularity of Jesus emphasized throughout the book. But you also see throughout the book, especially in chapters 2 and 3, you, you, you see this growing opposition to Jesus. Just as if we could graph it almost, just as the line was going up for his popularity, the, the line was also going up. Uh, for his opposition. And again, it was the crowds who th with whom he was popular, and it was the religious leaders that opposed him greatly. So I just made this little <clears throat> table here. For example, in chapter 2, verse 2, there were so many, it says, that were at the door of his home that there was no room left for anyone. That's chapter 2, verse 2. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, the same story, it says he's blaspheming. The, the religious leaders said that. So again, on the left with the crowd, there was, there was a large crowd that came to him by the lake, chapter 2, verse 13. And in chapter 2, verse 16, 18, and 24, uh, the religious leaders are basically accusing him. They keep asking these why questions. Why does he not wash his hands? Why does he eat with sinners? Why don't your disciples fast? Now, they're asking all these why questions, looking, it says in chapter 3, verse 2, looking for a reason to accuse him. So you see the popularity of Jesus, the opposition to Jesus. Again, chapter 3, verse 7, the crowds came to Jesus from all over Israel. And we looked at that on the map, and it literally was from all over Israel. They, the word had gotten out about him, and they came to him from all over Israel. That's the popularity of Jesus. But again, the very same text, just verse 6 says, the Pharisees and the Herodians began to plot how they might kill him. So isn't that interesting? People were coming from all over Israel to hear him. Yet the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill him. And then one, one more. The crowd was so large, in chapter 3, verse 20, it says he was unable to eat. <clears throat> they were mobbing him. He, he didn't even have the opportunity to sit down and eat. Chapter 3, verse 20. But in chapter 3, also verse 20, it says that his own family said... He's out of his mind. And in chapter 3, verse 22, it says that when the religious leaders came from Jerusalem to kind of check him out, they concluded, their conclusion was, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And so in chapters 2 and 3, we see this comparison, if you will, between the popularity of Jesus and the opposition to Jesus. Popularity of the crowds, opposition of the religious leaders. Now, that brings us to Mark chapter 4. I need you to remember this. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Mark chapter 4 <clears throat> centers on 
or, or emphasizes the teachings of Jesus. You know, prior to this, I told you that Mark really, really is emphasizing action. Mark is showing Jesus on the move. Well, it's almost as if the Lord pushes a pause button. When we get to chapter 4, the entire chapter emphasizes the teaching of Jesus, which is unique to the book of Mark because normally he's going somewhere, he's doing something. But now in Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him, notice this, again the popularity, the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So this was a very large crowd, a crowd so large, we're told, that he had to get in a boat to kind of put some space between him and the crowd. Now, it's an interesting point in verse 2. With this large crowd, I want you to notice how he taught. It says in verse 2, he taught them, this very large crowd, he taught them many things by what, church? By parables. He taught them many things in parables. Now, parables are basically stories from ordinary life used to illustrate supernatural or spiritual truth. All right, so hit, let me hit that one more time. Parables are stories from ordinary life used to illustrate spiritual truth. Now, would you just scan chapter 4 and tell me, what are the four parables that Jesus taught while he was on the lake? Have to say it loud for me. The lamp on the stand. Well, there was one before the lamp on the stand. Parable of the sower, lamp on the stand. What was the next one? Growing seed, which is an inter- interesting ter- parable. We don't have time to, to study it or to read it, but you might want to go back and read that one again. It's interesting, interesting parable there. And then what was the fourth one? Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think Jesus used parables? Just give me your opinion. Why did he teach the crowds with parables? Say it louder. All right? To help, so he was trying to help them understand. They didn't understand this, so he used stories to kind of illustrate. All right? What, any other reasons he used parables? Something visual that they could see, that, that way they could... Better understand what he was saying. <clears throat> it seems that Jesus really did adopt his teaching methods to the audience's ability to understand. But he also used parables, and I agree with both things that have been said, but he also used parables not to uh, confuse people, but to challenge them in their thinking. He basically sometimes used parables to say, okay, let me, let me kind of winnow out these people who are just over here for a sideshow and if you're really serious about the things of God you'll dig into what I'm saying so so look at the text in chapter 4 after we read about all these four parables look at chapter 4 verse 33 it says with many similar parables Jesus spoke the word to them in other words these are not the only parables that he used he he used lots of different parables to speak With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone 
with his own disciples, he explained everything. So he taught in parables to the crowds, it appears. But he explained everything in private to his disciples. In other words, he taught at a deeper level with his disciples. So when he had the crowd, he told stories. We call them parables. He helped them understand the truths of God. But when he was alone with the disciples, he taught them at a deeper level and helped them understand what he was saying. Now, I told you we're going to move quickly through all these, trying to catch up. So let's go on to chapter 5. Before we get to chapter 5, tell me again, the theme of chapter 4 is what? The teaching ministry of Jesus. Write this down if you're taking notes. Chapter 5, the emphasis is on the healing ministry of Jesus. Both of these will be important in just a few minutes. You'll see why I'm emphasizing this. Chapter 4, the teaching ministry of Jesus. Chapter 5 of Mark, the emphasis is on the healing ministry of Jesus. There are three healings that are described and emphasized in Mark chapter 5. First of all, there's the dramatic healing of the demon-possessed man. You know that story of how Jesus went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, verse 1. and It's a Gentile area, we know that because of it was, it, it was Gentile territory. We know that because of the story of the thousands of pigs that are there. And I, we've already talked about that a little bit. So I just want to go and read a couple of verses. Again, we're just trying to catch up. Verse 15, after Jesus had freed the demon-possessed man, and remember, he, he was filled with legions or thousands of demons. It says in verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Why do you suppose they were afraid? Why didn't they celebrate? Why were they afraid? Just opinion. There's no right or wrong answer here. History of the man previously, certainly. They, they knew how demon-possessed he was. They knew how distraught he was. And Any other reason? Jesus wasn't one of them. There was something different about him, wasn't there? He had a power nobody else ever had. In fact, it says in the story that many tried to hold him. Many tried to bind him. Many tried to put the chains on him. And he always broke it. Nobody could help him except Jesus. He had power nobody else had. In fact, he had so much power that when the people came out to see what they heard about, The man was sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Now, that's the first healing. We go to the second healing, which is the story of a sick woman. This woman had an issue of blood, the Bible says, and she had it for 12 years. She'd spent everything that she had trying to get well. If you've ever been sick and gone to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor, you know how frustrating that could be. That was the situation with this woman. And her faith was amazing. In verse 28, when she heard about Jesus, or verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she had never met him. She didn't have this long conversation with him. She simply heard about him. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd 
and touched his cloak. She just touched the edge of his garment. And verse 28 explains why. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. She understood something about Jesus, didn't she? She had a tremendous faith. A faith unlike any that that I've ever seen where she said, I know I've been sick for 12 years. I know there's no human doctor that's been able to help me. And I know I haven't met this guy named Jesus, but I've heard about him. And she had heard enough that her faith was very, very strong saying, if I could just get near him, if I could just touch his garment, I don't even have to touch him. I just have to touch his clothes and I'll be healed. Tremendous faith. In fact, Jesus recognizes her faith and comments on it. Look, look with me in <clears throat> verse 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. It's interesting. He didn't say, I've healed you. Now, certainly it was Jesus who did it, but, but he, he emphasized Lady, your faith has made the difference here. Your faith did this. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So we see the power of Jesus demonstrated in healing the demon-possessed man. We see the power of Jesus in healing the woman who had been sick for 12 years. And and he wasn't even trying to heal her. She just secretly touched his garment. That's how much power he had. And then we see the ultimate display of power in the dead little girl. Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, probably in Capernaum, had a daughter that was sick. You know the story, I'm sure. And while he was on the way with Jesus back home is when they had this interruption with this lady who was sick. And and Jairus gets word, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the master anymore. Now, verse 36 Look what it says. Ignoring what they said, that is the report that they'd given Jairus, the synagogue ruler, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. And then what were the next two words? Disbelieve. Don't be afraid. Disbelieve. Do you know the greatest hindrance to faith? The greatest hindrance to faith is not is not a lack of faith. The greatest hindrance to faith is fear. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And let's see what happened, verse 41. He went into the house, he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the girl stood up and walked around, parentheses, she was 12 years old, which happens to be the same amount of time that the lady had been sick, 12 years. Now, when we put all these three stories together, the three healings in Mark chapter 5, we see that Jesus has power over all things. Watch this. He has power over demons. He has power over disease. He even has power over over death. And that sets the stage for the next chapter where this one who was a great teacher and this one who had great power to heal 
went back to his hometown. Now, one more time, I'm going to rehearse for you. In chapter 4, the emphasis is on the teaching ministry of Jesus. In chapter 5, the emphasis is on the healing ministry of Jesus. In chapter 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown. Now, his hometown was where? Nazareth. Capernaum was kind of his home base. Chapter 2, around verse 1, I think it talks about him going back home to Capernaum. But his hometown, the place where he grew up, was Nazareth. So what we're going to do now, starting in chapter 6, we're going to take this as a, as a chunk of Scripture, chapter 6 through 9. <coughs> so it says, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. He went to his hometown. Look on the map. I don't have my little pointer, but by now you probably can find Nazareth. It's in Galilee, to the left of the Sea of Galilee, and you should, should see Nazareth there. <clears throat> That's where Jesus grew up. He decided to go back for whatever reason. He had been on the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He had been over there in the Gerasenes area. That's where he had healed these people. That's where the healings had occurred. Then he went back across the Sea of Galilee or back across the lake. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to my hometown. In chapter 6, verse 1, that's where he went. Now, let me show you a few, couple of pictures of Nazareth. Uh, there is still a town today in Israel called Nazareth. It is still the same town that Jesus grew up in. It's still there today. It's a very populated town, as you can see. I'm sure in the days of Jesus, it was uh, a lot less populated than this. It's a very busy, bustling kind of a town. And if you go to the next slide, uh, there's a, another picture. That, that's a typical picture of what you see when you're on the bus riding through Nazareth. Now, the, the little building, or not the little building, the building with the dome there, kind of left center, uh, that's the Church of the Annunciation, which is a Roman Catholic basilica built over the site, supposedly, of where the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, announcing that she would be the mother of Jesus. And that, that's a kind of a good description of what you see in Israel. Not every holy site, but many of the holy sites have a church built over them uh, to mark them and to preserve them. <clears throat> so, uh, this is Nazareth. Just wanted to to show you that. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. When he went, my goodness, when he went home to Nazareth, when he went home to Nazareth, do, do you think, and this is just, again, opinion, I wonder if there was any sentimental attachment to that area like we do. You ever been home? You ever go home and like, like to your hometown? I have. I mean, I've gone to Johnson City. I mean, I was, my birthplace is, is Anderson, South Carolina, but it only lived there six weeks, so I don't have a lot of attachment, you know? And then we moved to Johnson City, Tennessee, 603 St. Louis Street, Johnson City, Tennessee. It's where I grew up. It's my hometown, and, and I've gone there. I've gone back, and, and I get sentimental when I go back, and, and I'm amazed at how small the neighborhood was. It looked so large when I was, when I was there, you know? Have you ever gone home like that? You just, you go see your old house, you go see your old school, you just get sentimental. I, I just wonder sometimes if, if Jesus got sentimental when he went home. He didn't go, according to verse 2, to his, his old school, but he did go somewhere in verse 2, probably somewhere he had been before when he was in Nazareth. Tell me where he went in verse 2. 
We're not surprised by that, are we? We know by now as we've looked through the book of Mark. In verse 2, when the Sabbath came, he, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Since this was his hometown, that was not his first time in the synagogue. He grew up in that synagogue. So he's going back, and now he's coming back as a teacher. Now he's coming back as a miracle worker. Remember the chapters prior to this? The teaching ministry of Jesus, the healing ministry of Jesus. Now he's coming back home as a teacher and as a miracle worker. And I want you to notice how he is received. Verse 2, when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? You, you see what they're amazed at? They're amazed at his teaching. Where did he get these things? And they're amazed at his miracles. Word has gotten out. They understand who he is. On, on, on a, 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 a shallow level, they understand somewhat of who he is. And when he comes back home and he begins to teach, they, they begin to say, where did he get these kind of things? Unfortunately, it says in verse 2 that they were amazed, but that's not the whole story, unfortunately. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, isn't this the carpenter? No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy that grew up here? You know who I'm talking about, right? I mean, he used to come to synagogue every Sabbath. Isn't this the carpenter? And then look at this. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? I mean, this guy grew up in this synagogue. We know who he is. We know his family. Aren't his sisters here with us? And look at the end of verse 3. And they took offense at him. You know what that phrase means? They took offense at him? It means that they saw no reason to believe he was different from them. They saw no reason to believe that he was anything different than they were, much less that he was especially anointed by God. They took offense at him. What are you doing here pretending like you are somebody? What are you doing here pretending like you're from God? You grew up here. We know your family. They took offense at him. They couldn't see anything more than a carpenter. And then it says how Jesus responded. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, and I think he said this with really a sad heart, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. Notice how he breaks this down. Only in his hometown, and then he narrows the focus among his relatives, and he narrows the focus again. And in his own house is a prophet without honor. And then Mark gives us this detail. Mark says he could not do many, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed. He was amazed at something. He was amazed. It's only this, there's only two times in the Gospels where it says that Jesus is amazed. Here's one of them. And he was amazed at something. What was he amazed at? 
their lack of faith. The only other time that you see this same phrase, that Jesus is amazed, is in Luke chapter 7, verse 9. We won't take time to read it, but it was the faith of the centurion. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. And here, it's just the opposite. Here, Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith of the people in his own hometown. Which gives you, I think, a subtle picture of the humanity of Jesus, by the way. As the divine Son of God, Jesus would not be amazed at anything. As the divine Son of God, he knew everything. But as a human being, as God in flesh, as, as a human being, when he went to Nazareth, he was amazed that the people, look up here, he was amazed that the people he grew up with, he was amazed that the town where he grew up in, the people who knew him best, didn't believe in him. You see, here's what I've come to realize as I've studied through the book of Mark now again. Wonder and awe comes easily. Faith does not. I want to write that down. Wonder and awe comes easily. That's why the crowds were so large. Wonder and awe comes easily. Faith does not. In fact, what we're going to see here in just a few moments is the struggle of the disciples with their faith. <clears throat> All right? Um, go down to verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. I'm glad he didn't let the lack of faith of those in his hometown deter him. He continued to do what God had sent him to do. I wish we had time just to stop there and say, hey, you know, don't let the opinion of others deter you from, what, from God's calling on your life. Don't let the lack of participation, don't let the lack of enthusiasm that others have for you or for what you're doing cause you to give up on what God's called you to do. So the second part of verse 10, he, he went from town to town, village to village, doing what God had called him to do. I think that was a good lesson for the disciples because they too would experience rejection in their ministries. They too would know uh, the, what it would be like to have people turn against them. And so perhaps they could remember this time when they went home with Jesus to Nazareth. Now, <clears throat> We're just skimming the chapter. The rest of this chapter is packed with significance event. We don't have events. We don't have time to really even read them, much less study them. But let me at least call your attention to them because they set the stage for what we're about to dig into. In verses 7 through 13, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, Jesus sent out the 12 two by two. He's, training the, he's starting to train the disciples to take over once he's gone. So he sends them out kind of on-the-job training, uh, and brings them back and has them report. And, and then in, in verses 14 through 29, John the Baptist is beheaded. His work was done. He had introduced Jesus to the world, and now he exits the stage of history. And then in verses 30 through 44, Jesus feeds the 5,000. A significant event, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And then in verses 45 through 56, Jesus walks on water. Now, <clears throat> just kind of scan the chapter with me. 
He sends out 12, two by two, and he gives them power over demons and everything. John the Baptist is beheaded. He feeds the 5,000, and he walks on water. With the exception of the story of John the Baptist, watch this. Every story in this chapter emphasizes the power of Jesus. He gave the 12 power over evil spirits. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He walked on the, on the lake as if he was walking on the ground. Every story in chapter 5, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, every story emphasizes the power of Jesus. Now, talk to me. If you saw him do those three things, if you saw him, what was the first one? You saw him give power to the, if you were one of the apostles, and he gave you power over evil spirits, and you went out preaching and healing in his name. If you saw him feed 5,000 with a few pieces of bread and a few pieces of fish. If you saw him walk on the water as if he was walking on dry ground, what do you think that would do to your faith if you're one of the apostles? Say it louder. You would think so. You would think so. You would think that they would have a rock-solid, absolute trust and faith in Jesus. And if you thought that, you would be wrong. Let me show you what I'm talking about. There are two, put this on the screen, guys. There's two feeding stories in Mark. Now, now hang with me. Dig into this with me. It's, I, I think it'll, you'll find it helpful. There are two feeding stories in Mark. First, there's the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, verses 31 through 44. Then there's the feeding of the 4,000, a separate event, chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. It's interesting that both of these feeding stories are followed by what is called the hardness of heart motif. The hardness of heart motif. In other words, after each of these, these feeding events... It is emphasized that the disciples had hard hearts. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. Look in chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000. We've read this, but we need to just go back and look at it again. Chapter 6, look in verse 50. Again, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 6, verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat. This is when he's walking on the water. He climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. And then he makes this statement, Their hearts were hardened. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. It's interesting, when you go to the feeding of the 4,000, you see that hardened of the heart motif again. Chapter 8, look at verse 14. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. We read this the other night. It's kind of a funny story, but has an important point. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had, they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them against, I'm sorry, be careful Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Now, what do you think he's talking about? Why why do you think he brought that up? I bet it's because we didn't bring enough bread. 
<laughs> These guys encourage me. It's like there's hope for all of us, right? Verse 17. Verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Watch this. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Now look up here on on the chart. The feeding of the 5,000, it was emphasized their hearts were hardened. The feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. Jesus asked the question, are your hearts hardened? There's something here. There's something significant. There's something we need to take note of. What is it? Well, you need to understand that these disciples, though they had seen Jesus perform miracles, they had seen him perform numerous healings, they had had seen him cast out demons, they had watched him calm a raging sea, they had seen him multiply food and feed thousands, they had seen him walk on water, They had seen and experienced all of that, and yet though they had seen it with their eyes, watch this, though they had seen it with their eyes, they did not fully comprehend it with their heart. That's why I said a moment ago, if you had seen all those things, what do you think it would have done to their faith? And you rightly said it would have strengthened it. And I I would agree with you to a point. But they did see all of those things. They did experience all of those things. And Jesus said to them, yet your hearts are hardened. Look in chapter 8, verse 18 again. You need to read this. You need to see it. He asks a question. He says, do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? After all the miracles, they still couldn't take that final step, it appears. And believe that he was the son of God. Now now hang with me. Walk carefully. Because I don't want you to misquote me or, or to misunderstand what I'm saying. This was not simply they were misunderstanding something. He didn't say you still misunderstand. He said to them your hearts are still hardened. I really think it was kind of like this. As they followed Jesus, they got closer to the idea that this is the Son of God. This is God in flesh. This is the Son of God. And each time they got closer to the idea, and then they got to a point where they stopped. They couldn't take it that other step. They, they couldn't take that final step of faith and say, yes, He is the Son of God. Because every time there was this massive miracle, Jesus emphasized something. But, but, but your hearts, your hearts still aren't right. This, this is not that you simply don't understand it, but there's something deeper than that. <clears throat> See, can I say to you tonight, listen to me carefully. It's a big step of faith to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Most of you, maybe not all of you, but most of you were raised in church. Most of you have heard about Jesus since before you can remember. A few of you have not been raised in church. But for most of us, accepting Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, 
yes, in one way, it is a big step of faith, but it's not, it wasn't that big of a step of faith for me because I just grew up with it. I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing about the gospel. I grew up hearing that Jesus is the Son of God. I, I, I accepted it. I, I understood it. I, and it was a step of faith, no doubt, but it was something that I, that I was familiar with. But the disciples, the apostles, following Jesus for the first time, don't minimize the faith they had to have to say, you are the Son of God. You are the Savior of the world. Here's the word, so that you don't misunderstand it. Here is the word. Faith for the disciples was a process. All right? They were working towards it. They were marching in that direction, but it was a process. That's why Jesus said to them at the end of the feeding of the 4,000, are your hearts still hardened? It's a process. Mark patiently, remember, remember how Mark begins his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1? Mark begins his gospel this way. Let, let me just read it to you. You don't need to even turn back there. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, here's how he begins his gospel. The very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Mark begins his gospel by declaring Jesus is the Son of God. And then he spends the rest of the gospel painting this picture of these apostles trying to understand what that means. Trying to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. The Living Bible translates verse 18 this way. Your eyes are to see with. Why don't you look? Why don't you open your ears and listen? Don't you remember anything at all? So we look at this in 2019 and we say, how could they hear, watch this, how could they hear so much of Jesus' teaching? Chapter what? How could they see so many of his miracles? Chapter, how could they hear all that he taught and see all that he did and still struggle to fully accept who he was? Because faith is a process for all of us. For all of us. Which makes the next miracle so interesting. You see, after this, I want you to notice the next miracle beginning in chapter 8, verse 22. <clears throat> they came to Bethesda, Bethsaida rather, they came to Bethsaida, as the people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. I'm not sure why he led him outside the village, but it's interesting that he did that. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. In other words, I, I can see something, but I don't see very clearly. Verse 25, once more, 
Jesus put his eyes, or I'm sorry, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were what? His eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything what? Clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't, don't go into the village. You go home, but don't go into the village. Now, this is the only time we have record of Jesus performing a miracle in two stages. Or, could I put it this way? It's the only place we have in the scriptures that we know about in the Gospels where Jesus performed a miracle to heal somebody and it didn't work the first time. Or it didn't work fully the first time. It's the only miracle where he kind of did it in two stages. Like, okay, I'm going to, you're blind, you need to see. Okay, here. Put that on your eyes. Can you see any? Well, I see some, but I just don't see clearly. Then he touches them again. Now I can see clearly. Is it coincidence that this miracle of healing in two stages, of seeing in two stages, is it coincidence? Or is it really a parable of what the apostles had experienced? I think there's two reasons for this this miracle. One was the obvious reason. Here was a man who was blind who needed to see There's the obvious compassionate reason that we needed to heal him. But why heal him in two stages? There's no other time in the record of the Gospels where he couldn't do it right the first time. Every other time he healed the person and they were healed instantly and they were healed perfectly. Why did this man say, I can only see like, people like trees and then now I can see clearly because this I believe is a parable really of the apostles and their struggle to see with their spiritual eyes you see sight is a metaphor for understanding and just like the blind man could gradually see the disciples were gradually beginning to see what Jesus had who Jesus was this incomplete healing was an indication of Not of his inability to heal, but instead it was a vivid picture of what he was teaching the disciples. And that healing really kind of serves as a bridge between what happened in chapter 8 up to verse 21 and then what happens in chapter 8 beginning in verse 27. Because after after this, this healing, this two stage healing, very interesting what happened next in the narrative. There's a final exam, if you will, for the disciples on the way to Caesarea Philippi. It says in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. For the first time, Peter could see what others had not been able to see, or at least they had not voiced it. If we are relating this to the healing miracle, of the man who was blind, 
we would say this was, in essence, the first touch. Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, stay with me because you could say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't that the second touch? Well, I don't, I don't want to debate with you, but they still didn't co- totally get it after this. I'll show you that in a moment. But they, they could see something. Peter says, I, I see something. Here's what I see when I look at you. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. They're starting to get it. They're starting to see it. Remember, faith is a process. They're starting to understand. Notice how this narrative of the twice-touched blind man serves kind of as a bridge between their spiritual blindness in in verses 17 through 21 and this, if you will, the first touch in Caesarea Philippi. Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But as we will see, as the story unfolds, they still fully didn't understand what that meant. You know when the second touch would be? The second, remember now in this, in this miracle, this healing miracle, there's a first touch, I, I see people like trees. Second touch, I can see clearly. Do you know when the disciples got the second touch? The resurrection. Suddenly, after the resurrection, they could see. They could see clearly. Remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John on, on the Mount of Transfiguration? And, and they, they saw the glory of Jesus, and coming back down the mountain, Jesus said, now listen, listen, don't tell anybody until, until the resurrection. You know why? Because you don't see clearly right now. You think you understand what you just saw. You're not fully going to understand it until you, till after the resurrection. And then you're going to see clearly, just like the story of the healing the blind man. What do you see? I, see? I see something, but I don't see clearly. This was Peter, Caesarea Philippi. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. That sounds like he sees it clearly. No? No, let's, let's keep digging, and we'll find out that he didn't see it as clearly maybe as it sounded. You see, look what happens next. Verse 31. Boy, this is underlined in my Bible. He then, he then began, after this declaration, after they began to see who he is, after they, again, faith is a process, and after they've taken this step of faith, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. In other words, he wasn't speaking in parables. He he, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Hello. You see Peter? He's the one who said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. He saw, but he didn't see clearly, not yet. What do you see? I see, tr- I see people, they look like trees. Now what do you see? Oh, I see clearly. Peter was like that. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then when Jesus said, okay, well let me tell you what's going to happen. 
We're going to Jerusalem when we, when we get crucified. The third day we'll rise again. Peter said, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. You stop talking like that. So he didn't see clearly. And folks, if it was just one time, maybe we could say, okay, you had a bad day. Real quickly, chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the Son of Man, for the second time, he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise again. Verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. They didn't see clearly. Faith is a process. They're still trying to grasp what it means to say he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. They're now on their way towards the cross, though they don't fully understand that. But they're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. All those who followed were afraid, and again he took the twelve, that is for the third time, took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. He gave them more information that he had ever given them about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And, he, and it's grotesque, and it's awful, and James and John in the very next verse says, hey, could we get a promotion? Would that be all right? They did not see clearly. They didn't get it. They were like the blind men in Bethsaida. Faith is a process. But it will become clearer in the next week. Because starting in chapter 11 through the rest of the book of Mark, and we'll look at that next Sunday night, chapter 11 through the rest of the book of Mark, all of a sudden, what they did not see clearly became very clear. Crystal clear. As they watched him die, And then as they saw him resurrected, all of a sudden, they could see clearly. And we'll pray over you. Father, I thank you that we're all on that journey and trying to understand in a deeper way what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to live with faith in you. And for some of us, it took us weeks or months or probably even years before we put our faith in you and trusted you as Savior. For some of us, it was many people had to talk to us many different times before we understood the gospel and were ready to put our total weight of faith on you. I just want to thank you for your patience and your grace, not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. And we praise you and bless you in the name of Jesus. Amen.